Hi, you found the Bomb Podcast. For streaming videos, web exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com. This Bomb Live podcast features a conversation between Poets and MacArthur fellows Peter Cole and Edward Hirsch. It was recorded live in front of an audience at the Brooklyn Public Library on October 22nd, 2008. Mm. This is Peter Cole, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, I'm thrilled to be with you to talk to Peter about his new books. Um, I especially want to concentrate on uh, his new book of poem, Things on Which I've Stumbled, and on uh, his anthology, Hebrew Writers on Writing. And then, if we have time, maybe also talk a little bit about mm-hmm. the view of the poem. Yeah. Um, I'm crazy about the quote from Levinas. Mm-hmm. that starts this book. And I thought I might, to sort of um, set the spirit, I might quote it, read it, and then you could say something about it, maybe. The, wor- the word has meaning from the moment adoration is produced in this world, when a finite being stands before something which goes beyond him. Just a beautiful, mysterious book. Yeah. I've always been, been drawn to Levinas's work and um, I, years ago, I was drawn much more to his sort of straight philosophical work, and much la- more recently to his writings about uh, Judaism and Jewishness. And I don't, I don't actually remember where, where, where I came across that, but a lot of the material in this book is about um, getting beyond oneself, uh, about uh, a self that exists only in relation, or that has meaning and value only in relation. And that's very much, you know, something, a concern that's central to all of Levinas's work. And I just wanted to put that out there um, at the beginning of the book as a kind of tone, you know, sort of tuning fork, uh, a tone that struck, uh, because so many of the poems really deal with that in one way or another. Um, and also the, the, Somewhere in one of the poems, I talk about the uh, the distance between uh, uh, adore and adorn, and the notion of ornament is really central to a lot of what's going on in this book. So again, I just wanted to establish that at the outset. Um, there's a quote from Lorca where he goes, "Only mystery enables us to live," and it, it, it has that sort of sort of a signpost for Lorca is when you right. enter the world of this, you enter into a world of mystery. Yeah, with that Levinas, it's the mystery, but it's also an ethical relationship mm-hmm. to things around you, and that's also something that's you know running through the poems a lot. That's yeah. Jewish, right? Yeah. Uh, um, I wonder if you would. Um, it's Jewish, but it's also you know it shows up. Uh, of course, is it's, it's deeply Jewish, but I, I in the book, for example, it shows up in relation to Joseph Albers, mm-hmm. the painter, mm-hmm. uh, and the kind of relation of uh, color relations, uh, and so in a sense. I'm kind of seeing it, you know, all over the place. Yeah. I mean, the reason I thought of that is because it, it makes me think of Buber. Right. And Buber's right. idea of relation. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, Buber says, in the beginning is the relation. Right. And um, I don't know, that, that's always seemed to be a deeply Jewish notion, but of course it's not exclusively Jewish. Yeah, yeah. And also relationships between, you know, uh, another deeply Jewish um, pairing like that is the relationship between texts mm-hmm. of, uh, Seeing, 
seeing text in relation to each other in the way that people are in relation to each other and not thinking that that is in any way less than a personal relationship. Uh, Maybe you could begin by reading us the first poem about, uh, well, it's improvisations on Isaac the Blind. It's sort of, that way we can at least have a sense of what the poetry sounds like. Mm. Maybe, I'll, um, maybe I'll read that Albers bit, okay, just great. short, and then I'll read that one. They're both short. <laughs> a hog for. Uh, uh, we'll just we'll just turn it into. Uh, <laughs> I'm at uh, Yale this fall, and uh, at the Whitney Humanities Center, there's an exhibition of Albers paintings. So every day I'm walking by the, these Albers. This was written when I was at Yale last time, which is where Albers was. Um, Albers late homages squared no circle. He pushed green with orange, so it seemed red. He placed a teal form within a gray one. Or was that over? In his Bauhaus head, the absolute was always relational. Is that from Notes on Bewilderment? That is, yeah. yeah, and yeah. Is that a note on bewilderment? Um, well, the, <laughs> the, uh, the whole thing is, uh, is one big uh, befuddled gesture. Um, the, yeah, all right, we can do that. Okay, so the, the poem that Eddie wanted to hear was um, a poem called Improvisation on Lines by Isaac the Blind. Isaac the Blind was a 13th century Provencal Kabbalist. Um, and uh, so it begins with lines of his that I came across somewhere. And somehow they just struck me and they turned into this poem. The word bulbul here is a, uh, it's actually a word in English dictionaries now, but it's a a Persian nightingale. And we have many of them in our backyard in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Improvisation on lines by Isaac the Blind. Only by sucking, not by knowing, can the subtle essence be conveyed. Sap of the word and the world's flowing that raises the scent of the almond blossoming and yellows the bulbul and the olive's jade. Only by sucking, not by knowing. The grass and oxalis by the pines growing are luminous in us, petal and blade, as sap of the word and the world's flowing, a flicker rising from embers glowing, light trapped in the trees, sweet braid of what it was sucking. Not by knowing is the amber honey of persimmon drawn in. An anemone piercing the clover persuades me. Sap of the word and the world is flowing across separation through wisdoms bestowing, and in that persuasion choices are made. But only by sucking, not by knowing, that sap of the word through the world is flowing. Terrific poem. Thank you. Would you say something about the form of it? Um, well, it's a villanelle, and um, you know, poets, uh, poets like me aren't supposed to write villanelles. I, well, that's the, I, yeah. one of the reasons I wanted yeah. to ask if there are a lot of traditional forms in this uh, yeah. book, and the villanelle is, is one of the recurring forms, so is the guzzle. Right. And why, what does the villanelle do for you? Yeah. Um, I come, poetically, I come out of a more American experimental tradition. Um, but over the years, I've always read extremely widely, uh, you know, both in the English tradition and the Hebraic and, and, and Arabic also, um, and have always 
just had a kind of very Catholic uh, sense of what's possible in poetry. Um, what I feel is that, I mean, all, all poetry, your poetry, really anybody's poetry, if it's, if it's real poetry, you know, is responding to a given situation and to the situation is sort of dictating uh, the form at some level. And experimental poetry that is, that turns out to look like something we expected, we could predict in advance, to me is not experimental. Um, and a real sort of a honest approach to experiment is that at any given moment, in the, the entire range of English poetry should be available to you. Um, so I didn't actually set out to write a Villanelle. Uh, there's a Sestina in the book. I didn't set, or that one I might have set out to. We can talk about that later. Uh, but the guzzles also, I didn't set out to write them. Somehow those lines simply got into my head. And the forms really, those traditional forms kind of presented themselves to me. And I think at first I resisted and thought, you know, there was a part of me that, well, you know, should break that open and do something wilder with it. We were talking about wildness and uh, the breakdown. Could be anybody. Um, basically, I felt that um, the real experiment, the real wildness here, would be to see what would happen if I tried to write like that. Um, and part of it came out of, I think, my work with the medieval poets of uh, Hebrew poets of Spain. And they are working not with those kind of European forms, but with, with traditional Arabic forms. And I felt very comfortable in, the, in them by then. I felt as comfortable in them, uh, in those Arabic or, or Eastern forms, as I did in sort of American open form. And for me, really, the same principles are at work there. Um, I think these traditional forms are somewhat misunderstood, because although the form is there, the adventure of writing in a traditional form when the poem actually worked is itself a kind of discovery. Exactly. It's not yeah. as if it's all laid out for right. you in yeah. some kind of closed way. Right. The form has to unfold for you, as, and it has to be a means to discovery. And the idea, I think, is when the form is working, is that the form leads you to a kind of discovery that totally. you can get to. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I wanted the forms to read me in a certain sense and to do something uh, difficult and present a certain obstacle, that in a sense would, would free me. So I actually see those, you know, those constraints as kind of uh, liberatory in a certain way. And what, what you said about it being the, the adventure of them, I really felt when I was uh, writing these poems and I came to the poems in this book after a really long, intense period of translation, at least 10 years of burrowing very deeply into the Middle Ages and contemporary work. And uh, I really had no idea sort of what, ex what, what was waiting for me when I went back to poetry. Um, so. Well, one of the things was waiting for you was the notion only by sucking that. Yes, well, exactly, yeah, which I got from the Middle Ages and from translation that all that knowledge of things that were going on in the Middle Ages was essentially useless unless it became a kind of sucking and a kind of, you know, just intensely physical. Visceral. Yeah, yeah. And only then would the knowledge, you know, sort of come to life. Uh, but the adventure of it is what, what I really want to, what, what really struck me when, when you asked the question because every day I went into that room I just felt like 
I have no idea what's going to happen. And when these forms took over, I literally felt like I was just riding them and you know struggling to these keep are the up. Most so, moments yeah, in yeah, yeah. Um, why don't you um, um, tell us about the title poem, "Things on Which I've Stumbled"? It. I think many people won't know about the storeroom and what's there, right? And what that means. And so maybe you could tell us about yeah. that story itself, and then how that led to a poem. Yeah, "Things on Which I've Stumbled" is a poem about uh, what's known as the Cairo Geniza, which, uh, in in a nutshell. A Geniza is, it's actually a Persian word that has moved into Hebrew that means a storeroom. And in traditional Judaism, um, sacred texts, any text with the name of God on it, uh, but in some communities this was extended to anything with Hebrew on it, uh, these texts couldn't be thrown away. Um, they had to be, when they were worn out and no longer usable, um, they would be put in a kind of storeroom, or eventually the idea was that they would be buried. They would be giving uh, a burial just like a person. Um, but of course you couldn't spend all your time burying every piece of paper in your pocket. Uh, so they were just sort of put in this room. And in this one particular community in uh, Old Cairo, Fustat, um, beginning around the 10th century, uh, the storeroom was above the women's section of the synagogue, up high, out of the way, there was just kind of a little hole and they would throw things in there. And the climate was very dry there and they just forgot about everything. So for the better part of a thousand years, the intense period was about 300 years, in a sense almost every piece of paper from this community, secular, sacred, letters, legal documents, lots of poetry, uh, you name it, was just all tossed up in the, into this attic as it were. And in the uh, late 19th century, by chance, it was um, discovered and eventually brought back to Cambridge, England. And um, scholars have been going through it pretty much ever since. They haven't really gone through it all. It's all been preserved. Um, so this is you know, something that they stumbled on. And I was in Oxford now. Is at Cambridge. Cambridge. There are some fragments at Oxford too, and the whole sort of competition between Oxford and Cambridge. My wife, uh, Edina Hoffman, and I are writing a book about this now for Shock and Next Book. And um, the whole competition between Oxford and Cambridge it was behind all this. Uh, lots to, to talk Oxford about there. Yeah. <laughs> well, they could have had it. They yeah. came very close. Uh, anyway, um, I was at a poetry festival in England and looked on a map and saw that Cambridge was nearby. It's, uh, so I wrote to the people there and asked if I could come see their collection of uh, poetry from the Middle Ages, these manuscripts, and they said, sure, and they gave me a tour. And they basically said, you could, they're right next to the Darwin Papers in the vault. I mean, it's really an incredible sort of powerhouse of, of, of manuscripts there. there. Plant species, right? <laughs> right, right, crawling up the uh, side. And so they showed me all the things that were in my book and sort of highlights of the collection, but then they said, well, you can just go rummage around there for a while. And I started opening things, but, and it was by chance, and I saw these fragments, poetic fragments, and A, I was shocked because I could read them. You know, they were in medieval handwriting. They were incredibly clear. Literally, if you just, you know, picked up a piece of paper on the ground today in Jerusalem, it looked like that, somebody's handwriting on it. And they just, you know, they were just kind of jumping out at me. And I put them away and then I went somewhere else and I came back and I kept coming back. And it just, for some reason, I felt that I wanted to write a poem about them. And I've never had that, that sort of 
desire or plan for writing a poem like that. But I wrote to them again and said, could I come play with these documents, basically? And I didn't know if I was actually going to be able to read more than those few things I had come across. And they said, OK. So I was the first ever and probably last poet in residence at the uh, Cairo Geniza unit in Cambridge. And every day for a month, I just went through. When I got there, I said, I want to see the anonymous fragments, because that was part of it. I didn't, I didn't want to translate them. I, was, I didn't want this to be a work of translation. I wanted those poems to read me, in a sense, the same way the forms I talked about were. And so I said, how many of these anonymous fragments are there? And the woman said, I don't, it's not so many, but I'll, I'll come up with a count for you. And the first day she came up, she said, well, I was wrong. There are 9,000 of them. <laughs> so I quickly did the math. How many did I have to look at each day to, you know? <laughs> and I basically just sat with them for a month. And, You're still a yeah, young person. Yeah, right, yeah. So, <laughs> And was um, the idea, it must have emerged, that the poem would be fragmentary to follow the fragments? I had no idea what would emerge. If anything would emerge, if I would just sit up there and write, you know, all work and no play <laughs> makes Johnny a dull boy. Um, and they gave me an office on the fourth floor. And I really just, I did not know what, all I knew was that I wanted to be with this material. Uh, and then I started to take notes on, and my rule was anything I didn't understand, I ignored. I was done with trying to decipher medieval text. Uh, anything that jumped out at me, I would just sort of jot down notes about. And I was reading about the Geniza and the sort of practice around it. And um, by about the third week, it started to form itself as a poem. At first, I was, you know, there was a, the usual terror of what am I going to do with all this material to sit over. And then it just very naturally evolved. There are translations as part of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you ended up translating against your will in a certain kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Their fragments are in italics or woven through, but they, and with my own voice, and the ideas that, or be, the idea that emerged was that in time I really couldn't tell the difference. Now when I read, sometimes I wonder if I've made a mistake and the parts in italics, you know, actually I just put them in italics, or you really, the voices merge, and there are a lot of different voices in there from this whole story, because it's all, it was all thrown in the storehouse in kind of random fashion. And, you know, so, and, and the fragments that I was looking at are also cataloged in random fashion. And that's part of what I wanted was the randomness. Uh, and so it became a kind of metaphor for the, um, for the way I think poetry works, which is you are just stumbling on things and you're constantly sort of translating the world and things that come into your field of vision or hearing. Um, and establishing this very powerful relationship to the past. In this case, it was the past rising up into the present you know, very, very powerfully. And then the poet sinking back into the past. And the, kind of that kind of alternating current between them was what really what interested me. Yeah. It's interesting because you, you said that you were specifically trying to get away from translation a little bit in order to write right. your own poems. Yeah. And um, after a very long, deep, serious immersion and thinking about yeah. translation and also translating. One of the things that strikes me is that when you turn to your own poems, there's still a lot about translation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Notes on Bewilderment begins with a meditation on translation. Yeah. Yeah. And translation comes in all through the book as a kind of, not a literal practice, but it starts to become, it is a literal practice, yeah. but it also starts to become metaphorical. Yeah, I think, you know, what happened in this book was that I had become so much both identified as a translator, but also translation gave me and has given me such intense pleasure and the involvement with it has been so gratifying. Um, 
when I began, I always wanted to separate the poet and the translator in me. And I thought that was a healthy thing, and I think it was a healthy thing. Um, but at a certain point, I th you know, it's all the same. It all became the same for me. Translating poetry, reading tr good translations of other people's you know, poetry, other people's translations of poetry. If it was good, it felt to me like the same thing. And at a certain point, I just accepted that, that that's, I had become a, quote, poet translator. And for me, uh, there's every bit as much poetry in translation as there is in so-called original poetry. I really did not make that sort of uh, distinction anymore. And the, the kind of liberating moment for me was when I just accepted that, you know, um, I was translating the world in a sense, or in a kind of jokey sense, I was translating myself, mm -hmm. and the pressure was off. Mm -hmm. I know how to do that, right? Translate, I know how to do. Um, and that also made everything available in a different way. You know, I, I no longer had the sense of, um, well, it's just you and the white piece of paper. No, it's not. It's you and the world. It's you and what you're saying right now. It's you and everything, which is the way translation was for me. Um, and so instead of trying to keep all that stuff out of the poetry, because this is poetry, not translation, I said, look, let it in, let it in. Um, so it's there in certain places. And I also think of translation as a very spiritual act uh, in the same way that I think of poetry. And um, so I said, let's see what happens. You know? When I first began reading you, I think I didn't know you. You were living, in, I think, in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and it seemed like your tradition was very much the objectivist. Yeah, poets. yeah. Was that a fair? It seemed like I, the work <clears> of yours I was reading seemed very indebted to George Oppen in particular. Yeah, I love Oppen, yeah. and I just wondered yeah. if that's that. That had nothing to do with living in San Francisco. I was there much later, actually. Um, but it, it was, I think, as a very young poet, when I went to Jerusalem, uh, to find the objectivists. <laughs> um, um, certain things happened. Uh, my brother, younger brother, was killed in a car accident. There was that sense of just sort of rupture in my life. Um, I was introduced to a kind of Hebrew liturgy that was completely different than anything I had been exposed to in the States in sort of Ashkenazic European tradition, things that had to do with Arabic scales and a certain kind of brokenness but sensuous brokenness. And that kind of sense of rupture or break with a mainstream tradition felt important to me. That, that's what spoke to me, both in Hebrew uh, and in English. Um, how it is that I actually came to the objectivists, I, you know, I can't really even remember. When I was in college, I didn't know who they were. Um, I began reading people like Robert Creeley. Uh, I mean, I was reading everything, basically. But it was, I think it was the Black Mountain poets that eventually led me to the, the objectivists. And the fact that so many of them were Jewish also spoke to me. Uh, Reznikov, Zukovsky, Oppen, all, you know, all in very different ways. And I think some of their ethical concerns, particularly uh, Oppen and Reznikov, also spoke to me in a, in, a, in a Jewish sort of way. I tried to write about that. The first thing I ever published um, was an essay trying to link Rothko, Barnett, Newman, the painters, and Oppen and, and Zukovsky. Um, but I, at a certain point, I also felt that, you know, that was enough of that. Um, my involvement with the medieval Hebrew and the contemporary Israeli writers 
led me in a different direction. And I, I mean, in the same way that all poets, you know, you move on and you have to, I think, learn to just let those influences go. And uh, one of the reasons I bring it up is that I think they've come back in a much richer and wonderful way in your newer work. It's mm -hmm. as if an objectivist poet or someone in, involved with objectivist poetry, influenced by objectivist poetry, went to school on medieval Jewish poetry for a decade mm -hmm. um, and came out, this is my own interpretation of mm -hmm. it, it's not anyone else's, but it's as if you put yourself to school on this ancient Hebrew poetry right. and you came out with your American you know, experimentalism still there, right. but now it's been filtered through this very powerful Jewish stream. Right, which is also, in a different kind of <coughs> and that medieval Jewish stuff, uh, Hebrew stuff from Spain, is itself can be seen as a kind of experimental poetry. I think of it as a classicizing avant-garde. Mm -hmm. This is not the way most scholars look at it. They see it as a very formalistic, um, you know, they always talk about someone like Richard Wilbur would be the ideal translator, and I say, you know, absolutely not. Um, that poetry was, you know, radical for its time, uh, was also involved with that kind of breakage or a sense of, of rupture with the tradition and introducing the foreign um, into the Hebrew context, uh, deeply sensual. Um, and I've also, one of my great loves has also been <coughs> Middle English poetry from the very, very beginning, um, which I guess is also in Zukovsky at some level. Um, so, in, you know, I'm trying in a sense, I think, to just let all that speak uh, through the poems without controlling it too much. One of the things that I think that's interesting about your poems in relationship to contemporary poetry is that, um, because fragmentation is very much a mode amongst in contemporary right. poetry. Right. I would say that one of the things that, to me, distinguishes your work in relationship to fragmentation is that a lot of <clears throat> work by poets now revels in fragmentation, delights in fragmentation, seeks fragmentation, right. rejoices in fragmentation, and has no real uh, intention or longing to put things together. Right. And I would say what's distinguishing about your work is it is fragmentary at times, but there is, I feel, a mournfulness and a great longing for connect connection. Yeah, is that is that fair? Totally. I mean, the if you know the deep theme, you started with the Levinas. That is essentially a, a comment about connection. Mm -hmm. uh, what goes beyond you? Um, I'm kind of a, a nut for connectedness. Mm -hmm. uh, I looked up recently the uh, the Forster quote, you know, of uh, connect. only connect, of course, but people don't remember what comes next, which is, you know, something like, no longer to live a life in fragments. Uh -huh. That's what follows that with that character. Um, and uh, someone wrote to me about the, the Geniza poem, saying that, you know, this was not a kind of uh, Eliotic or Poundian, uh, you know, short against the, the rune, um, that those are, What's going on there is that the fragments actually are trying to come back together in a certain sense. They're rising up, they're trying, you know, the sense is, I'm trying to make sense of them and their presence. Um, and so I do think that a, a kind of easy or a sort of complacency with fragmentation is a real problem. <clears throat> and it's something that a poet has to fight against. Um, you know, if the fragments present themselves, fine, but then what do you do with them? Um, and that's also one of the reasons why um, I've wanted 
forms that almost call for wholeness mm -hmm. at times to serve as counterpoint to... In a way, to, forms have a lot to do with repetition. Right. And the repetition is a way to cry and heal something. Right, yeah. To bring it back so it's not all fleeing in different directions. Yeah, the repetition and also for the sort of quatrains, the various rhymed quatrains that run through. Uh, the last poem in the book, there's alternating poems, usually in quatrains, not always, but with prose poems, mm -hmm. which can be seen as a kind of fragmentation, but they're connected by a sort of web of sound. You know, so there's always some sort of unifying principle there. They also there. alternate with lyrics. Right. So there's yeah. lyric, prose, poem, lyric, right. prose, poem, lyric, just yeah. by themselves. Yeah. I think this is important in contemporary poetry because I think that a poetry that revels in fragmentation and doesn't want to do anything with it, but just delights in the way it is, right. is a cold poetry. Yeah. yeah. And a poetry that takes that fragment and sees it as something we're doomed to mm -hmm. um, and that we're trying inevitably and fail to transcend. That we're, we're left with our fragments, um, but we seek something else. That stri strikes me as, as can lead to a passionate poem. Right, yeah. And so emotion has a different place. To yeah, well, in the Geniza poem, I talk about these fragments as Keats's hand, you right. know, that in the margins of uh, that late, the, yeah, you know. Um, that's what those fragments were like for me. They really, I felt that kind of warmth and, and, and that, that kind of passion from them. And so I tried to work with them, uh, you know, getting them to speak for me in a sense and me to speak for them. Uh, I mean, in the Keats poem, there's something so desperate about it. Exactly, yeah. And, and rage, really, yeah. that he's dying. Right. And he's trying to reach out from the coffin yeah. and touch you before Right, and there's also this long delay. That fra that piece of marginalia wasn't yeah. published for another hundred years, I think. No one knows whether it was part of a play right. or whether right. it was its own poem. It was just by itself. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, Pound had that notion all poets are contemporaneous, and the, 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 the Geniza poem has that feeling that it's all still present. Yeah, and that goes, I mean, that's, I quote Pound in my medieval book, yeah. uh, because the rabbis have something just like Pound, and this is an you know, unhappy uh, for Pound, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, he wouldn't, really wouldn't be great. thrilled, or maybe maybe he'd be very maybe he'd be helpful. At least oh somebody else. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but so the rabbis in the Talmud say that there's no earlier and later in the in, in scripture. Mm -hmm. That all basically all ages are contemporaneous. So they have all these anachronistic yeah. settings where you know Moses will be sitting in a Talmudic academy somewhere, and just everything is reversed, and time can be played, you know, like a kind of accordion that sort of goes back on itself. Um, and that is a deeply, <coughs> deeply Jewish notion. Uh, it's one that informs all the medieval poetry because they're just wreaking havoc with scripture. Um, teaching at Yale now, one of the first things I have to do with students is to get them not to think that every time something is mentioned from the Bible that it's sacred, you know, that it can be completely just irreverent. The and, it's yeah, just yeah. The um, it's and that it's not solemn, at least, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so those medieval poets are just playing very sort of, uh, you know, loose and fast with all that stuff. Maybe this um, idea of this can lead us to say something about Hebrew writers on writing, because in your introduction, you say something about, in that book, about Hebrew literature being connected in a way that you hadn't quite anticipated. Yeah. Or maybe you already knew it, but you make the no. claim that it holds together and 
things are talking to each other in ways that you hadn't Those were, you know, the, the book worked like some of the formal. Yeah, one the, tell people what the book yeah. is. The book is called Hebrew Writers on Writing. It's um, part of uh, Eddie's uh, series called The Writer's World, which Trinity University Press is publishing. Uh, Adam Zagajewski did the first volume of Polish uh, poets or Polish writers on writing. There was a Mexican um, volume, an Irish volume, and a lot more in the works. Yeah, yeah mine's a fourth. And um, so Eddie asked me a couple of years ago if I would do this, and I thought, oh my God, this is the last thing in the world this is I need. Friends are right? <laughs> yeah. And my wife said, if you take that job, <laughs> yeah, don't complain to me. Because one could, in theory, spend 10 years doing such a book. In fact, Shabtai, the Israeli poet I translate, you know, said, he said, but that could take a lifetime, you know. You did it really um, fast, I, I did it fairly fast. I, I treated it like a poem. Mm -hmm. I, I treated it like a long poem and saw it in formal terms and understood that I would only have so much time to work on it, and, you know, I have to work it into a work schedule. And, um, I eliminated a lot by saying, you know, okay, I'd only have one or two essays by how many writers could I have, the book has to be so big, and so anything that didn't interest me, if I got bored, and I made a huge stack, I, was, uh, I had a, uh, a hip operation, another hip replacement operation coming up, and I said, okay, I already, it was my second, so I knew that I would have some downtime. Uh, <laughs> and so in the, um, in the months before the operation, basically two months before that, I just began gathering material like a maniac, just Xeroxing and books and buying used books, and that was great fun. Walking around Jerusalem, just buying up all these old books that really nobody wants anymore. I got yeah, amazing the series, things. By the way, is writers making comments about writing, interviews, essays, poems, short stories, diaries, whatever, to sort of set a portrait of what writing is in a given country. Right. And um, anyway, so I. Basically, while I was recovering, I began to read through all this stuff and start to form a picture of what that, you know, continuity looked like. Uh, and I knew that I didn't want it to be academic in any way, so I really didn't care what the scholars said the tradition looked like, because there, that, that also has to do with certain sort of Zionist narratives, and there are political agendas in that whole thing. And um, I had certain people that were important to me over the years, sort of spanned the century from Bialik early on. Um, and then I just began, I literally went to the reading room of the National Library, I put my finger on the books, and every book, every writer I didn't know, I pulled the book off the shelf and made these stacks and started to go through them, and then talked to my friends who are these people, and the next thing you know, I just had all this incredible material on my hands. Um, one of the things so. I really like that you say in the introduction is this is sort of um, as if what was going on on the side while Israeli literature was now posing for its, a, for its official, official portrait. portrait. Yeah, it's a wonderful notion yeah. that something else is going on rather than just the official narrative of what yeah. that literature. Well, is. this also has to do with the kind of work we do at our press, where I feel that the sort of official version for export of Israeli literature is actually. It doesn't speak to me in a powerful way. It's, it has its strengths. But if you eliminated all the so-called you know, major players in that game, it would still be fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a very, very vibrant body of literature, uh, poetry and prose. And so what I wanted to account for was that sense of excitement that runs really through the whole century. I mean, obviously, it's the same impulse with the medieval stuff. Um, but I wanted to present that, the sort of modern version of that. 
Um, For and, example, I thought just from afar that your book would probably start with Bialik. Right. And I was so surprised and, and delighted that it didn't. Did. Well, I have, you know, when I made up and I made up all these lists and the friends made up lists and so forth, and I had one list that I don't remember if it started with Bialik, maybe, but maybe somebody else more representative. And I showed it to a, an Israeli writer friend, a woman who's a very fine essayist, and she said, that's boring. You know, that's really boring. And I felt it was boring. I felt I have to lift that weight and translate this stuff that I'm not excited about. Yeah, Forget it. And so, you know, when I took the project on, I thought, okay, I'm going to take it on if I can surprise myself. Uh -huh. That's the only reason to do anything, you know, in this field, as far as I'm concerned, and to learn something. And you know, and so I said, all right, I'm going to build it up from the sort of pleasure principle. What do I find really surprising and exciting? Um, and so it started in the end, and at the very last minute I shifted. I can't remember, I think first maybe it was purely chronological, and then there's this figure, David Frischman, yeah. who was a... I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, and he's totally forgotten. I, in all my years in Israel, I've lived there for 25 years, more. I don't think I've ever heard anybody mention the name. A beach in Tel Aviv is named after him. And I only knew it as a beach. And, and then I began to read his prose. He wrote prose and poetry, and he was sort of a, and a great critic. His prose was so beautiful, so clear, and, and very much a part of a European tradition with a sort of deeply informed Jewish consciousness. And I thought, you know, where has this guy been all my life? I just felt totally in love with him as a writer. Um, and so I opened the book with an elegy of his for a, uh, another writer, a younger writer, a guy who died in his 30s. And it's just a kind of portrait of a gifted young man who died too soon, and in some ways, is a, and worked in obscurity but most he of the time. Also, says what he thinks literature is. Yeah, 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 and it all comes out in there. And so the book, so then it opens with Frischman, and then later on, I have another uh, Polish-German writer writing about Frischman as an old man sitting in a Vienna cafe with three other younger writers. And the younger writers are sort of talking about the literature of the day. And Frischman uh, is in his last year of his life. He's very sick, and uh, he sort of he can't smoke his cigar. He's kind of looking, you know, sort of gesturing. And suddenly, Frischman says to them, he says, "All this literature, what's it really for?" You know, he's he's an, he's feels that his whole life really has been kind of wasted. And they, the young writers, then turn to him and take turns trying to cheer him up and convince him that his life has been worth, as a writer, has been worthwhile. And he bats them down one after another. It's really power. I mean, it just gave me really goosebumps. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, uh, Dina and I both work at home, and when I was working on this book, I would, you know, come out at lunch with some of this stuff. I said, can you believe what's been out there all this time? And so that was really. Maybe why don't you read us something from the book that you discovered that yeah. you wouldn't have known or that we would certainly wouldn't know? Maybe I'll read another poem just because uh, they're shorter. Um, well, the higher payoff. Of course, yes. <laughs> Straight to the Godhead. Um, there's a poet named Noah Stern, Noah Stern, whose uh, his story is, uh, how much time do we have for that? <laughs> he's got a, he's got a, okay. Um, he is an incredible figure. It was born in Poland. He went to high school with Leah Goldberg, we've talked about before. Then he went to Canada, and then he went to Harvard. He graduated from Harvard. Then he went to Palestine. He translated the wasteland into Hebrew. It was the first one. 
He then... Um, How do you say Shanti, Shanti, Shanti? Uh, yeah. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Just, just like they do in Israel now. Yeah. Um, and he was, he was a poet very much ahead of his time in sort of the Israeli evolu literary evolution or evolutionary scheme. And he then moved to a kibbutz near Jerusalem and um, went, started to go crazy. And uh, at a certain point, tried to strangle the kibbutz librarian, literally tried to kill him, and he was, he was stopped. And um, then they discovered in his diaries, he had the whole thing, he had plotted the whole thing out in his diaries about somebody who was going to strangle the librarian. <laughs> and so they were going to try him for attempted murder. And he you was, shouldn't say that in this building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and he was eventually institutionalized and spent the rest of his life in the institution. Um, I think then killed himself. Um, but he was a marvelous, marvelous poet. Um, very, it's not known in English. A handful of poems have been translated. Um, this is a poem which I literally stumbled on, one of the things I, I stumbled on. Uh, and um, it's called The Young Poet. And so I just, you know, I read through his collected poems for this book and came up with this one poem, Portrait of the Young Poet. He loves himself, the pain within, and in another person, pain's reflection, his. In the murder, this actually goes back to the, the Levinas in a certain sense, but in a much more perverted way, <laughs> perverse way. He loves himself, the pain within, and in another person, pain's reflection, his. In the murderous hot summer wind, he drills of his own free will, and in a fevered soul descends, emerging with the poem. His speech is not tucked in, as though he were negating a rule. His mouth moves and doesn't move. He will not notice if the listener's listening, but the poem within him stirs, the song of a man he'll never know, glowing so and so sublime, and oh, so ironic. He sends words out to grope along the paths of the imagination of one who treads out to the woods and then gets lost within its thickets. The words, too, are lost there, although the echo of an omen returning from the forest <coughs> reaches him and the poem. Between poem and poem, between the village and the town, he walks stealthily and forgets almost entirely the world. And so he lives, who loved solitude alone and the hot summer wind, who loves himself, the flame within, and happiness in him is wakened only by the poem. So that's yeah. That's <coughs> So maybe now we should open up yeah. the Or both. Or both. <laughs> 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 
Okay. Mm -hmm. And also, just so you all know, there is a very nice gentleman outside who's selling books and ball magazines. So hopefully we get the I think we're okay, yeah. Um, it's a good question. It's, it's not exactly my field, but I am interested in it. And the, um, the answer is yes, there are translations. And the connection between both Gilgamesh and a lot of the Assyrian stuff and Sumerian stuff with biblical work is um, um, there's, there hasn't been a lot done with it, or at least it, you know, it hasn't really kind of filtered out from the world of scholarship. But there is very interesting work being done on it so that, for example, there is a book in Hebrew about the um, Near Eastern source of a lot of the Psalms. You find um, uh, the Princeton Pritchard, there's a book by, I can't remember his first name, but Pritchard, two-volume book that Princeton did years ago. And he has all these Near Eastern poems from the different um, Near Eastern languages. And in the margin, passages from the Bible where you see the parallels. Um, and that kind of cross-fertilization, which is not what we usually, you know, the way most people think about the Bible, is very much the sort of work that interests me, both in the Middle Ages and in the, the kind of work we do at our press uh, with sort of Levantine literature, which is this um, uh, sort of the potential in hybridization and in cross-fertilization. Um, so there actually is quite a bit of it. Gilgamesh is one example. Um, and I've sort of been collecting uh, things. I want to do something with it down the road, but I haven't gotten there yet. So, yeah. We always get that question to start. Right. right. <laughs> we actually, that we planted that it's one. We planted that one. Sort of, we I think we touched on it earlier a little bit, but they're just I feel very lucky. They've been enriched. That storm has been enriched, you know, um, you know, exponentially. Um, 
between not just the medieval things, but also translating medieval things brought me to, to medieval Arabic and to modern Arabic, and that brought me back to a whole another take on the English tradition. And so all that's kind of there for me now, and that feels marvelous, you know, that, that feels really wonderful. Well, I mean, like, are there more, like, nouns, like, like, you know, kind of mystical ideas? Like, what are, what is, what are your words like now? <laughs> you mean the actual? The actual words, like, what are you kind of moving There, I think, if I'm understanding what you're asking, there is a kind of music I think that I have in my head from all that translation work that is definitely, let's say, far from what the objectivists uh, taught me early on. And it is much more about a kind of um, texture, a kind of weaving, a kind of, um, you know, uh, raveling, putting things together than it is about watching them fall apart, or if they've fallen apart, seeing what the larger shape can be. Um, so that music is there in a very, uh, intense way. I don't. I, I couldn't say that it's, you know, a lot of the work I I worked with is not at all mystical. I mean, some of it is, but a lot of it is anti-mystical. Literally, it sets itself up against mysticism, um, and I, that's all there. And that, in a way, that's all in me. I mean, I have those those parts in me, a kind of part of me that's drawn towards mystical things, and a part of me that's deeply skeptical of it all, and you know, goes in fear of the kind of easy access to that kind of mysticism. Um, so that, that's all there, but I think the, the common thread is that sort of music and the ability to combine that I found in the Middle Ages that was very free and, um, and kind of wild in its way, you know, within these symmetrical forms. Thank you. you just listened to a bomb podcast. A conversation between Poets and MacArthur Fellows, Peter Cole and Edward Hirsch. It was recorded live in front of an audience in the Dweck Auditorium at the Brooklyn Public Library on October 22, 2008. Don't forget to check out other bomb podcasts at bombsite.com.